Thanks, friends, for listening to Nonprofit Lowdown. If you like Nonprofit Lowdown, you will love my free weekly newsletter with resources, fundraising inspiration, and cute dog photos. Did I mention the cute dog photos? Sign up at RiaWong.com. That's R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. Host Rhea Wong. Welcome everyone to Nonprofit Lowdown. I am once again and always your host, Rhea Wong. Today, my friend and colleague Olympia Ammon is here to talk about boards. This is the board clinic. We're going to answer all the questions about boards. But before we get started, we're going to hear about Ollie and her path to nonprofit fundraising. So, welcome, Ollie. Hi, Rhea. Thank you. Are you going to tell your story after I tell mine? Maybe. I don't know. It depends. Show me yours. I'll show you mine. So Ollie and I are new friends. We were introduced mm-hmm. to a mutual acquaintance. And, and when we met, it was just like Vulcan mind model. I was like, oh my God, you complete me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your path yep. to nonprofit. Great. Well, and there's some people that are on the webinar that I think have worked with me or for me, or I'm working for them right now. But I felt like everyone, you'll hear this every time and you'll hear it from Rhea. Like I fell into a nonprofit fundraising work. And it's interesting. I had worked in sales outside of college. I actually had a territory. I go call on accounts and then I went to business school and I needed money. I always worked extra hours and extra jobs. The development office at where I was getting my MBA needed someone to help them who knew how to use PowerPoint. And that's something the business school students knew how to use. So this person that had just come in to run this big campaign asks for work study students across the university. I'm there as a first year business student. I'm like, I need money. So I walk into this development office, not having any idea what development means (laughs) or anything. And within like two days of working for this person, who's now one of my best friends and on my advisory council, who eventually became my boss, I was like, this is sales. This is the exact same thing. They called them portfolios. I called them territories. Um, There's donors and names. I called them accounts. I had numbers I needed to meet. I had net profit numbers. And I tried to sell things in packages the same way that you would talk about giving opportunities. My family was not philanthropic. We didn't go to galas. We didn't volunteer. I really didn't even realize that that was the way my universities were funded in addition to other streams. I really was so clueless as to the whole business model of nonprofits. And then when I realized I had some skills and it was interesting and that there's a whole army of people doing that same type of thing for nonprofits, that's when I got excited. Having the sales experience in for-profit and then also having an MBA, which I then received two years later, was a really interesting vantage point. And I actually think it's been an advantage to me and my team members or even my clients that I look at things differently already. Just having that for-profit chunk and the MBA combined with what I'm looking at, because it's rare that MBAs will go into nonprofit. You're kind of turned off from it early. It's never a career path. We all fall into it. And I was already falling into it while getting the MBA. So I kind of avoided the, like being diverted away from it. Um, But that's actually literally how I found it was this kind of extra job. And then this total realization of the very common part about sales to some people get very sensitive saying we're not sales. That's not what we do. I actually think we are sales and I love sales too, though. I actually have a positive connotation (laughs) for sales. I don't think of that as a bad thing. I think both of them are unbelievably strategic and can be, they're what drives companies and nonprofits. All right. So you have worked for lots of very interesting organizations and blue trip nonprofits. Now you're on your own doing your thing, which shout out to the ladies trying to make the entrepreneurial (laughs) thing happen. But when you and I first met, you said, 
I just want to start a board from yeah. scratch, like the ideal yeah. board, just to show people how it's done. Let's start with that. Why boards? Yeah. And it's funny when you said this, everyone has a book in them, Oli. And remember you had talked, you actually are going to put one out and you're like, what would, you, I think you even said mine's going to be on this topic. And I was like, if I wrote one, it would be on boards. And I think that we should be able to start something from scratch from boards. So again, in nonprofits, and I don't think a lot of folks outside of the industry realize that the board really is almost a version of the CEO. It is where the buck stops and it's the governing body of the nonprofit different than a private company different from a for-profit public company that is owned or directed by its shareholders and other things. So it is the head of the dog. Now it doesn't always, sometimes the tail wags the dog, but to me, you can't go farther up or farther upstream than a board to make changes within an organization, even as far back as the tail of this dog. If you see issues, and this has happened when I've been in teams before as an employee, but also with clients, whenever I see issues that might seemingly be completely unrelated, I just look up. And if you keep looking up in a nonprofit, the place you can no longer look up is actually the board. That's where it stops. So to me, any impact or tweaking you can make on that has massive implications for all pieces of the nonprofit, all of it, all the way down, even though it may not seem like it, because some staff members, some constituents, many of them will never even know that there is a board or who's on it. Yeah. It's such an interesting point because I often talk to EDs who think of their board as a hindrance, not a help. They do the work despite the board, not because yep. of the board. So let's just get right into it because this is a question everyone wants to know. Why the hell is my board not fundraising? <laughs> like that is the million billion dollar question. So in your view, what are the obstacles and what can we do about that? Yeah, I know you're going to have some good additions to this, Rhea, so I'd love you to pipe in on your own questions. Honestly, I think one of the main reasons any board member may not be performing their duties is they actually don't know what their duties are at all. They don't know them. So they actually don't even realize that they are supposed to be doing the fundraising. And part of that could be because of the person that recruited them didn't also realize that. It could be that they were never told by that person what they're supposed to do. Usually it's not in writing. There's not anything signed. It's the exact opposite of recruiting for a job. And most of it, there's a posting, there's a description. Hopefully there's like, here's what your performance review is going to look like. Here's how you apply, showing us how you meet these requirements. There's a process of like interviewing many applicants against these skills and needs. The process chooses the best candidate and you're brought in and asked to perform to those expectations. That is actually how a board should work. <laughs> and which is why I would wanna, I'd love to help boards almost start from scratch or would love to in this fantasy land, start one from scratch. It would start from that specific of things, role descriptions, job descriptions, clear onboarding. So again, onboarding doesn't usually happen. So how would a board member know after a friend says, hey, just join this board with me. We need some extra people. It's fun. Like you'll figure it out. I'll, I'll just come to the meetings with me. If you're going to that and you have received zero onboarding from the team, you know, and then all you're being pummeled with is why aren't you raising money or something like that? It makes no sense. Also, a lot of times <laughs> the staff or other board members who are frustrated that the board or other board members are not raising money won't also tell that person <laughs> that they're frustrated. So you're almost in an island from what I can see from most of my clients and places I've worked, you're almost set up to fail from the beginning because the expectations aren't clear. I think that's really one of the main reasons they're not asking. The second one would maybe be just, and I want Rhea to talk about potentially like behaviors and attitudes toward money, which is good, a really other big one. But the, the second obvious one is just training and demystifying 
the actual ask, making people realize it's the same thing you do on a daily basis. It's not scary. Everyone can do it, providing confidence to people to do it. But even before that, I've usually seen the lack of knowledge that they're even supposed to do in the first place. Yeah. I'd love to add two things. Like the first yeah. to your point is the training. Like they give people mm-hmm. this thing, go, go fundraise. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait a second. Hold on. Like there are some fundamental elemental foundational things that they need to have. First of all, understanding the donor journey because i think the misconception is that fundraising is asking for money it's like no it's not like that's a very small percentage of the overall and so i likened it to okay you're basically asking your board member to go into a room where they nobody and ask people to marry them like how's that gonna go that's gonna be a disaster (laughs) so don't do that but the second point that you alluded to that i feel is so critical is the baggage and relationship that we have around money Because I think we assume, and you know what happens when you assume, but we assume that because somebody is in finance or we assume that they make a lot of money as a corporate lawyer, we assume whatever it is, that they have no issues with money and their own relationship with money and scarcity. Like, hello, we all have it. And until you unpack it, you're just going to keep hitting those emotional blockages. Totally agree with you. Yeah. We totally agree with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So... If I'm listening to you, I'm like, Oli, I hear you. Yes, totally. What do I do about it now? Like I got the board that I got. So what do I do? Do I rehab? Do I burn it all to the ground? Like how long is it going to take for me to turn this whole ship around? Yeah. Well, it's funny, even in, the, in this question you're asking, the, the what do I do? So when I first hear you ask that, I'm thinking I'm the ED. What do I do about the board? But in reality, and this is part of where you start, the board is actually supposed to do that for itself. So the board needs to be self-sustaining and have an understanding <laughs> that it assesses itself. It brings in nominations. It hires, then trains and develops the CEO and also fires that person. It keeps the organization afloat. So the I in that question is important. If the I in that question is the ED or the CEO asking this, that's already a bigger flag. The fact that this person is actually feeling the burden that actually should be placed on the board itself for recreating itself. So I think if that were the case, then I would really try to figure out, is the board chair someone that I could start working with and what resources do we have? Trying to catalog what does each board member expect? You, know, you really almost have to start way back because an ED or CEO can't restart a board. They can't fire board members or get rid of them at all. Like they can suggest, <laughs> but they're actually, they serve the board. That's their boss. So it's very, very tricky. That one would almost be a more tricky question. If you are the board member, the board chair in particular, and you're asking this question in partnership with your CEO or by yourself, that's a better situation to be in because you've already acknowledged that is something that the board needs to do. And in that case, I look at it the same way I do a team. So I have a few people that have worked for me in my very last job before I started on my own. I walked into and just walked into teams that are like obliterated. They're already, they're really not already optimal. And it is the version of the board that's not working. And what's ironic is you'll see it happen to me. I'll still look up because things mimic themselves. A poor or badly performing CEO is usually because of a poor or badly performing board chair or board overall. Then you'll see like, oh, there's not good communication internally. Well, you'll realize the board doesn't have good communication either. Turnover is high. You'll realize turnover is high on the board. It's crazy. They're actual indicators of each other. They're so intertwined and you just don't even think that that would pierce the membrane of the organization, but it does both directions. But if it were back on track, I would look at it the same way I would a team. So you can't usually without disrupting an operations, completely fire everyone on your team, especially as a new manager or a new leader. To me, you start assessing what's there, figuring out which 
people are more most aligned with your vision, who are most aligned with the energy and the vision of the organization. You start small, and then what you have to do is work as hard as you can to get the majority. You have to kind of work, say there's 12 people on this board, and there's only two <laughs> that are actually the ideal setup that you'd want. You probably have to get to almost six or seven before you start tipping it over, and, and actually it'll really gain acceleration and become really good when there's like a majority of the right types of people. One thing I did, and I did this when I've hired people too, is I try to do it in pairs or trios. So if you were to try to, in this theoretical 12 person board, and only 10 of them aren't ones that you think are ideal, you wouldn't want to think about one at a time, bringing in new folks. It's lonely to be a new board member, especially if you're higher performing than the existing ones. So I would be looking at duos, trios, even sets of four that you could look at, even if it takes longer to cultivate together and come on as a cohort and then properly onboard them as a cohort so that they are friends already, they're like-minded, and then they can help support each other in this new scenario. And at some point, it tips over. And the, the better and higher performing a board is, the, the better and higher performing an ED will be. And so will their teams. It's kind of like rock climbing. When one hand goes up, the other one has to reach out. Mm. So I do think they adjust each other. I've never seen an unbelievably fabulous, 100% amazing board and a horrible CEO. It just doesn't happen. Usually the CEO's good too. I've never seen an unbelievable CEO or ED and the worst board ever because that person will leave. They'll leave. So like usually they're about equal or you're hoping to ratchet it up one way or the other. So what I hear you saying, because I totally agree, it's the, mm -hmm. it's a process. Yeah. And I talk about this a lot, which it took me six years to finally get the board that I wanted. That's, right. That's about but, right. Yeah. But I think it's, you have to start where you are and have a long-term plan for eventually turning it over. And I think the term, someone told me this term and I, I thought it was brilliant, which is you just have to love certain board members who are no longer a fit out the door. Love them mm -hmm. out the door. It's like, that's actually a great analogy for team members too, yeah. for team members that don't work. Yeah. Well, and the other piece that I just want to lift up here is that I feel like we spend so much time in agita on the board members that aren't working yeah. as opposed to investing the ones that are. And so it's almost like work with the best, leave the rest. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I can see that in donor cases too. You have a portfolio and everyone's like, oh gosh, this curmudgeon donor who's worth so much money. If we could just get this person to give and people spend a lot of time and energy. Meanwhile, there's like amazing donors at the mid-level or leadership giving that we take for granted. You're like, I actually you probably have a better turnout and also much more confidence and more fun if you try to work with the ones that are already in your corner. I agree with you on that one for sure. Okay, I'm gonna ask you one more question and let's talk about founder boards because I know you're gonna get triggered. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about founder boards. I don't even know what the question is, like where do we even go with this? But what is up with founder boards? Why are they so difficult? And well, let's just start there and then we'll talk about what we do about them if we happen to step in after the founder and try to make things happen. Yeah, that's great. Because you and I met through an actual founder board member, which is hilarious. And they're on to the majority of my clients since I went on my own have been founders on the board still. So not even just nearby, but literally on it, on the and potentially even life trustee situation going on. I think part of it is just like entrepreneurs. So just like people who love to found companies, it takes a certain grit and like excitement and like 
determination to start something, a lot of those same people can actually end up being the one that's the CEO, still the CEO of Facebook, for example, like can still get up there and stay. Obviously that's a great example. Like should he still be there? But the skills needed to start something are different than the skills needed to grow something usually. And all of us have our strengths and talents. So what you'll see with founders is usually those are people that clearly know how to start something and keep it going or else it wouldn't be alive. So they have a skill and their identity is attached completely to this nonprofit. So it feels very personal. Sometimes their name is the nonprofit's name and it could be that specific, like back down to it. So I think it's really hard for them to understand. I also think this is the same example we're talking about. I don't think they have an opportunity ever for training or mentorship from other people going, you know, at some point, just let me tell you how this might work. You might do so well that you don't have a job anymore, that you've actually turned this over to someone else on your board. Let me tell you why that's amazing and what you could do with the skills you have to start something else again, or, or an offshoot of this nonprofit. So there's never, no one's really kind of prep them and for the idea. I keep thinking about those of us that have kids. I mean, we do know, I know some parents are much more clingy to their kids, but usually you have a kid, you do realize that at 18 or older, they probably will leave the house at some point. Some Get out of my house. house. <laughs> but you do know that you know that before you have the kid. I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but I don't even know if when people are that passionate, especially if there's a need in the community that they had even expect to like have the child leave the house. I think it is really, really tough and it's hard to do when emotions are involved. And usually those same founders compile their friends and those around them that will make sure that they stay in power. I've seen most of those, at least from my experience, the boards that are assembled around founders are very, very submissive to the founder themselves. And that's because the founder was smart and chose people that would be <laughs> submissive, but you're actually choosing your boss. So it's so strange. It's, there's very few situations where you're choosing your own boss and your boss is actually more than one person. And there's an ED job <laughs> or a CEO job of a nonprofit. So I think it's just very, very tricky. I've usually seen there's, there's trusted people that that founder has around them that are usually a little bit more, they're not the founders themselves. So they can see more of both sides. And that's a good place to start. It's just trying to figure out that degree of separation, like their next degree LinkedIn connections, <laughs> like how many of them can we safely and comfortably maybe introduce ideas to the founder about what's healthy for the organization. I don't think they purposely want it to be unhealthy, but I do think in many cases they're actually stifling the growth. It's, it's the example of like having your 30 year old kids still living with you. I'm not saying that that's not a bad thing, but in general, I would think that might not be as healthy for the 30 year old to think they need their mom or their mom thinking they need the 30 year old still in the house. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, and the other piece I would add too is like I think the particular challenge there is that because founders often recruit their friends or close acquaintances, the loyalty is with the yep. founder. And so transitioning that loyalty from the founder to the institution can be hard because it may well be it's like, Oli, I joined because I love you. I don't really yeah. care about whales or whatever. <laughs> and that's okay. There's a natural progression that has to happen. Okay, we had some questions coming in. So we, I emailed a question to you in advance. Should we talk about that question? Yeah, that's a good question. This wonderful person wrote in and said that the board is used to meeting virtually and has gotten a habit of doing that. And I'm not sure in this case if the board's ever meet, met in person, but right now they're on this virtual, obviously the Zoom situation. And so the person was asking about, would a retreat be a good way or a good strategy to try to maybe assemble the board members in person? And one of the questions was, would that be a good way for us to have them more engaged with the mission and all of that and the operations of the nonprofit? And if so, what do you need to do during this retreat? So there's kind of a two-part question. One is, should we really be pushing for in-person meetings now that they're possible? And then if it's a retreat that you're offering, would that be enough of kind of candy to get them over to go? And then what would you have in the retreat? I do think that in-person's really necessary in the next six to 12 months, because otherwise I think there'll be like only Zoom meetings, which could work for some places that are like 
all over the country where you can bring in amazing board members. But if I think if you're in one community or one geography, it actually is better to start having people meet in person. In fact, I was just at a board meeting this week with one of my clients and we tried again to the Zoom plus in person. And we realized just going to go back to old fashioned board meeting plus audio conference, like the, just the phone conference audio rather than trying to get the Zoom plus the in-person because it's becoming really hard to do the combo. But I think a retreat is a great reason to get together. I also would have asked this person, do you have other things already going on? So are you an nonprofit that's a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen or whatever, could you actually have the board members come into something on site that's already happening, an event that you want the community to know about anyway, or is there a volunteer appreciation lunch that you could have them attend? It doesn't have to be a retreat to get them in. And if there's something going on that would really showcase what's going on with your client base and you've had direct client things going on, I think that would be a really good opportunity as well. It doesn't have to be a retreat. But if I were doing a retreat, whenever I've set them up and Rhea, you should tell us about the one you just did because you were just here in LA and you just did a retreat. But components I always add, which I'm sure you do too. I always add some sort of bonding or team building thing, not a cheesy icebreaker thing, something that's comfortable for people. But it's sometimes the only thing people remember. So something that connects each person's story to the nonprofit, and then eventually will connect them to each other, something personal. I also put a lot of breaks in because a lot of the water cooler stuff that we're used to seeing in a workplace at board meetings, it happens during board breaks (laughs) because otherwise the board's never together. They don't work together. So I over break if I can and try to make more time. I always try to add like social time, either like happy hour or something like that, food into it. And then if there's some way that they can see the ultimate impact of the nonprofit, so bringing in the ultimate receiver of the mission, the services, or even a staff member, but I still like to see like, can we get to the end user? If this was the soup kitchen example, could we find somebody that has actually been impacted whose day was or week was saved or their family was made better because they found this place and were able to stay on their feet another week, like really going to what you're really there for so that they understand. And then the last piece I would add is just, it's so bad, but a lot of nonprofit, if you grabbed a a board right now of a typical nonprofit and said, tell me your mission statement, I think there's a lot of them that actually don't know what it is the words of it, the literal mission statement. So I would probably be working at a minimum on making sure everyone not only knew the actual one, literally word by word, but had a way to make it meaningful for them, almost like elevator speeches. But I mean, if you have a board that you can't at any moment blindly call anyone and ask them the mission statement and they don't know, that would be a good place to start. Yeah, totally. Do for yours, Rhea, because you just had an amazing retreat that we met Yeah, about. so very similar to you, because I think the thing that yeah. we forget, especially as EDs, is that we have relationships with our board members, but they don't have relationships with each other yeah. necessarily. So at the end of the day, this is a team, and if they don't know, like, and trust each other, they're not going to work together. And so... To your point, I always start with a Jeffersonian dinner style meeting, both in order to model this for them. So I'm like, this is a meta thing. We're going to go through it so you see how it works. But also, it's a connecting thing. And so let's all, and I usually settle on a question that is relevant to the work of the organization. Like, because ultimately you want to lift up the, why are you here? There are a million things you could be doing with your life. Why this thing? Why does it matter? Why does it matter to you? And then the other piece to your point is around skills building, which is, In fact, we should not assume that they know how to talk about the organization, that they know how to fundraise, that they know what to say in a donor meeting. So we literally role play it. And also anything I can get them to do to talk to each other. Like I don't want to talk at them. They need to talk to each other. Those are recipes for a good board retreat. The first question is coming in. Any best practices around onboarding? 
That's a great one. First off, I would have the board be doing or involved in it. So the actual, hopefully the governance committee or a nominating committee, or maybe you just ask one or two, the best showing would be having a peer at least be the welcome and helping structure that meeting rather than kind of carting them off to staff. Not that the staff aren't amazing, that's us, but I would have a peer hosted type of thing. I would actually try to do something in person or if it's in Zoom, not have the sessions be more than 90 minutes and break them up into multiple things. I would have it written down and I would do it the same way and think of it for the next two years, how do we, or maybe this current year with the board, how do we want to onboard each of our members and make sure the board's aware of what the components are and then consistently onboard. It's just like you would for new employees. It would be weird if like you brought in someone new next week and they got one set of onboarding and then next person shows up a month later and they never got half the sessions. A lot of this is a good opportunity to document things, to keep current presentations, rosters. If you haven't (laughs) had an opportunity to put together like a current roster, contact information sheet, the onboarding actually forces you to do a lot of that. So I would, again, keep a lot of it in writing and then make sure that you're sending information to them in advance if they need to read it first. If they're going to be just sitting with a person, I've seen this a lot when it's program stuff or mission-oriented content that the mission person comes in with this amazing deck full of tons of things and they just literally go through the deck with the person and then they leave. I think that's probably a miss. I would be sending the deck in advance. And then maybe bringing some of these questions like Rhea talked about to kind of engage the person so that they connect not only with that mission person, but also aren't just hearing slides. The best practice would be to do a pre-survey. So sending a note saying, what do you need to learn about? What would you like to talk about? Using that to determine some of your content with the board's engagement, and then also sending a post-survey to them asking how you did so that you can improve the next onboarding. Yeah, a couple of things I would add to that as well. I, those are yeah. all really great. I love board buddies. So assigning yep. an older, a more experienced board member with a younger board member and That's have right. them like take them out for coffee or take them out for a drink just to build that social capital. The second thing is I would go through a board menu of activities. So it's crystal mm-hmm. clear to your point. What are you going to do this year? What are you actually committing to? And then the third thing, which I think is something that we miss a lot is what do you as a board member want to learn for yourself? Because I think a lot of folks join boards and are looking to either build a skill set or build a network or something, right? So I think it's about value for value. They're not here just to give, they're also here to receive. So what do, are they wanting to get better at public speaking? Do they want to learn more about finance? So I think yeah. we also have to think about it from the perspective of how are we enhancing our board members' lives? With the board buddy thing, we also, I'm used to assigning a staff liaison too. So same thing. So and you can even do this and have it in your database as a relationship if you're that sophisticated where you have prospect managers and things, but there could be board liaison as one of your fields that you connect and it could be staff board liaisons and then the board buddy or like board peer could be a second one. So you actually have like a team. Obviously they'd know the ED and some other people too, but they'd have both a staff and a peer that's cultivating them or stewarding them together. Yeah. Okay, I got a really interesting question coming in here. Any ideas around rejecting applicants who applied to join the board and to move them in supporting a different way? I have a lot to say about this, but Oli, please. Yeah, again, this the person receiving these nominations should be a governance committee person and not, it depend, in a healthy situation, the board is deciding who's being nominated as, as crazy or not crazy as these people are. So they should have a process. There should be a fair criteria-driven process the exact same way you would for a job where you're actually actually looking at the members going, do they have these things? A lot of, it's actually kind of fun with a board to do that matrix to begin with. Like, what are we actually looking for? Where are we missing skills and expertise? Like, do we need a marketing person? Do we need a legal person? Are we looking for someone from this part of town? Those types of things. But if you can think about that before names pop up, before a person name pops up, you do the criteria without judgment. 
and you say, this is really what we need, then as the names come up, you can kind of decide and rate them against each of those criteria or the nominating committee can do that. And they'll have backup around why they, and then also be able to give that person feedback if they're not selected. But yeah, what's hard is I've seen names be suggested and all of a sudden the criteria match that person's name because somebody wants that person on the board. I mean, you really want to look at it objectively the same way you would with a team. Do you need three people doing your bookkeeping? Probably not. At your office, you probably need a marketing person, but just because your friend likes his bookkeeper, would you hire that bookkeeper? You wouldn't really do this in a, any other kind of situation. What do you think, Rhea? I'd love to know your answer to that one. Yeah, to me, it feels like there should have been some process even before the person yeah. applied. So it yep. looked, like to me, it looks like... <laughs> Is this person on a committee? Have they engaged yeah. as a volunteer in some kind of way? Have they been to our events? Like it shouldn't be a surprise mm -hmm. when they come up as a name, like, yeah. very similar to hiring. You want to be sourcing these people all of the time. And so right. by the time they get to application, you already have some kind of relationship with them. And I can tell you, I have made mistakes by taking on board members too quickly because I had a need to fill. I was like, I need someone who's head of finance. I'll bring this person on from private equity. And it turns out like we didn't really know each other. He was a little bit of a bull in a china shop. And I actually had a process around the getting to know you. So again, I like a dating analogy. It's like, don't yeah. ask people to marry you unless you've been on a couple of dates. You may find out that actually this is not someone that you should have married. Yeah, I've worked at places where we didn't allow board members unless they had served on a committee first. So I mean, that process could be set up where we're actually then sourcing more broader set of people to serve on committees because you're testing them out. It's amazing because you're like, it's a voluntary position. So you really do get to see whether they'd show up to a meeting. If on a committee, you have four meetings a year, you can check that and see how they participate. You could have that be part of your process of saying as best practice, have to have someone that's already either volunteered with us in a service way or has already been on a committee or whatever the criteria might be. Okay, I have a really juicy one here. Can you give examples of loving people out the door? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Okay, we're both going to answer this one. Honestly, a lot of times it is thinking of the positive, right? So hopefully there are ways that they have contributed. You can literally create ceremony around this. We're doing this with one of my clients right now, creating a way for the organization to honor all of the things that this person has done and really taking time to make it formalized either in a meeting or a meal or some sort of like everyone writing cards, whatever videos that you can create, but really making it like acknowledging what's going on because it could have been that it's the mistake of the board that they brought this person on. The person could be amazing and they were set up to fail. It's not that usually a, the actual person is a bad person. It's probably just like a wrong set, just like we've all been in jobs that aren't the right jobs for us. That doesn't mean that we're horrible or the place we work is horrible. It's just not the right fit. So I would say like this formal sense of ceremony around it or something that feels really like an honoring and a turning over. Um, in one of my former workplaces, we really did have a formal roll-off ceremony for board members every June. And that was what we dedicated our June year-end board meeting to. And there would be plaque. There would be people standing up and talking. Sometimes we brought family members in and there would be things that we sent home as a keepsake. The CEO would call them from the national office and all of that. So you can really do that. And again, like if they have a peer, if there's a board member who is respected, that can help with some of that. So it's not just the staff and they're feeling this from a peer. It's a lot easier, I think, to take. And there's a lot of great board members out there that are extremely discreet and professional and they do this all day long in their professional lives. They know how to do this. Um, that can help shepherd it along, I think. Yeah, I would just add to that, that I think it has to be private conversations leading up to it. So like in the best scenario, 
much like a breakup, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Yeah. There should be some conversations about like, here are my expectations. What are your expectations? Like, yeah. is this still a fit for you? Blah, 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 blah. And look, the truth is there are some board members, especially if they're very emotionally connected, who will just leave mad yeah. if they're going to leave. And like, you can't win them all. I've definitely had my fair share of people <laughs> leaving mad, but mm-hmm. to the extent that you can help shepherd them gently out the door and make them feel really good about their time with the yeah. organization, the better. Because the last thing you need is someone out there putting you on blast in the streets. Totally agree. Yeah. And I do think you should go out of your way, especially if you know the answer is going to be better for the organization. It is worth being the big person and really treating them well. Just like you would an employee that doesn't work out. You still don't want to kick someone out. That's not appropriate. Right. All right, Mark, give a question. Mark asks, Uh, how do you recommend handling board members that seem to only be there for self-aggrandizement? Can they, in your experience, be effectively recentered slash realigned to the org mission? Oh my gosh, I have so many examples of that going on with some, with a couple of places I'm working with right now. What do you think? There's always a solution for everything. I think it is really tough when there's an, like a personal advantage or even a potential conflict that's disguised and that this person's on the board and actually gets a lot out of that board seat. And it could be even educating the governance committee and nominating committee about some of that. Yeah. What would you do, Rhea? What do you think? Yeah, I honestly, I think it's fine if someone is there for self-aggrandizement if they actually do stuff, right? Like, I don't care. <laughs> if it's like you want to be on this board because you want to be fancy, but you have to be on this board because you want to be fancy and you have to do stuff. So I'm a big fan of the annual evaluations, and that has mm-hmm. to be with your board chair or your head of governance. Yeah. It can't be the ED. I mean, maybe the ED can sit in, but like it has to come from the peers. And at the end of the day, I think conversations about like, well, why are you here? Going back to our original point, why are you here? There are a million things you could be doing with your life. Why does this thing matter to you right now? And ultimately, I think if done the right way, and if the culture of the board is strong enough that it will make the person who's sort of out of alignment feel like, oh, this is not the place for me. But I think it's a gentle and longer term strategy. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. And also like if they're like the first to volunteer to like do something because maybe the other rest of the board isn't as active and they're like, I'll chair that or I'll do that. I would say it's also like being able to have an answer like, what a great idea. We're going to talk about that and get back, like allowing them. Sometimes they're very assertive. Sometimes people can just bulldoze over the rest of the board members or staff in settings, especially group settings. So it might mean that you have an answer that doesn't imply that they can only do what they want to do. Same kind of thing or put in leadership roles, like really thinking about whether or not there's an appropriate role or chairmanship or executive role they need to to hold or if it'd be better off to keep them in a different capacity. Right. Okay. I have a really interesting question coming in. So this question is that some of our board members are actually EDs of their own nonprofits. Mm -hmm. So it can be challenging to ask them to raise money when they're raising money for their own nonprofits. Do you have any tips on supporting board members to fundraise in this case? That one is tough. And that is also very common. It would be interesting to look at that mix and see how many of them are EDs fundraising for their own nonprofits. Because at first I would actually look at that and think it might be a flag for them to make sure they're not overly saturated with not that those amazing brains, but you know, those could be free council or some sort of other capacity type members that you're to me, a board seat is, is like gold. If you really had the right set, you wouldn't need that big of a board to really be top notch. You could have a seven person board with every person in there, exactly what the organization needs to hit its mission. And it would be unbelievable. That's why I'm saying that starting from scratch. If you really think about the potential of that, if you had every seat filled with the right person, it's amazing what you could get done with a small group of people. Same with a senior team. So it is an opportunity cost. Every time you place a person in a seat, especially when you need to have quorum and I mean, there's advantages, some advantages to have larger groups of people, but in a lot of cases, the benefit 
is not very high after you get past like 10 or 11 board members, depending on what your organization is, of course, and its size. So I would probably just think about that. Maybe there's some interesting ways you could just analyze who's on the board and maybe bring it up gently to the nominating committee or governance that this a third of the board that's really leveraging seats or has seats that could be different. And then I think you just have to acknowledge their conflict. There's probably strategies you could all use to help each other. In the big picture, there's plenty of donors to go around. And I know that. So, <laughs> And so maybe we all help each other. And if one of them is successful in like their annual appeal, for example, and they're your board members, I would hope they'd be able to share with you as a board member what worked for them and maybe could help improve yours. So it could be an advantage that you could tap the other way around by actually having Leveraging their strategies, not their contacts, not their donors, but helping them put their best practices into place and feel like they're making an impact that way. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess the only other thing that I would add to that is if there was a world where you could think about segmenting their donors. So like whatever your organization is doing, is it different enough from what their organization is doing that they could then tap their networks for that? Because like not every donor is going to be interested in all the things. And then maybe it could also look like, well, maybe instead of doing active fundraising with my network, I'm going to make introductions to foundations that may also fund. Or I'm just thinking about synergy. But yeah, that's a bit of a tough one. All right. Felix has a really good question. Felix, you want to jump in here? Uh, this has been really interesting, and I appreciate Olympia's the speed with which you're delivering this information. <laughs> no, it's okay. I love it because a lot of times you sit in webinars and it's sort of like kind of drag. So this is great. This is blasted at me, right? Not so, my webinars, Felix. No, no, no. <laughs> never yours, right? Well, I've worked on a number of nonprofit organizations, and I'm talking to some now, and I'm yeah. going back and forth between do I want to serve as an executive director mm-hmm. or as an advisor? How they interact with me is very telling. I'm already yep. realizing that a lot of them are seri- very undisciplined and in some cases unprofessional. So how do you communicate the fact that they're dysfunctional to them. And how do you raise it in a way where you say to them, I'm not sure that you understand the difference between governance and management. Yeah. I need answers on the what and the where we're headed. I don't need answers on the how. That's why you hire the exec and your team to deliver on the how. How do you address accountability mm-hmm. issues with board mm-hmm. member behaviors? Right. Uh, how do you deliver the message that, hey guys, we need an internal assessment, sort of an empirical one, so that we can produce a report card on the health of the organization. Then we could have a basis for conversation. And the final thing is now that you've identified all that, how do you bring them to the best practices? Yeah, that, those are the wrestling matches that I've had for 20 years. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, my first answer is if you were in, I would love to. So the best situation would be someone like you actually coming in as a board member saying those things, because that again, where I'm saying like the buck stops at the board. So if I were to choose you saying what you just did as a potential ED or, or head of school or CEO, or as a board member, I'd be like, put you on that board because that board needs to listen to its peers. And that is the body that actually can and should be asking for a strategic plan and looking at a self assessment. You could talk about obviously consultants like us that come in and do different things. That would be ideal. If some voice like that was on the board, that's every EDs or development consultants dream situation. Someone already implanted in there and like even finding that person to then try to insert in the board, which is one of our strategies is really hard. So if there was a choice, I would say there, if not, and you're potentially being considered for an ED or CEO job, I would make it a condition of your hiring and say, I only work here if the board would be open to me thinking about these things. And within one year, we're able to do a self-assessment, decide what our strategic plan is, feel very strongly about this. I know I work for you, but I want you to be successful. And this is what I've seen and potentially asking for a budget around it that you do or putting it as a condition so that they know you're serious about it. And then if they don't do it, you can walk. Move on, right. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, it's a dream. Your voice is the one I'm constantly seeking 
on every board that I work with. I'm trying to find the Felix. Usually there's one and it's interesting. Sometimes it's not the person you think it is. It's not the chair. They're not on the executive committee. One of my clients is here right now. They know who I'm talking about on their board. It's somebody random new that just happens to come in with a fresh voice. And you're like, you could be the chair. You should be the chair, but nobody even knows your name yet because you haven't even been onboarded or in an in-person meeting. So if there's at least one of you, that's the hope that I need. That or the CEO or ED is so adamant about it and has the leverage with the board that they can, as their employee, force them to change. Again, because once you're in and you're asking, it's tough because you report to them. It's like right, asking so, your boss to be better as a boss. You know? So find, so you're, I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing is find a like-minded person on the board, cultivate that relationship and see if you can't get them to step up. It depends on the power dynamics on the board. I've worked for some really scary yeah. people and I've worked for some really sort of homegrown folks who can't even get them to show up on time to meetings, that kind of thing. So my range yeah. is really significant. Yeah. The other thing I would say, Felix, too, is the, to Oli's point, the self-management and the peer-to-peer is really powerful. So I like the five dysfunctions of a team and there's like a self-assessment because it's one thing for you, Felix, to come in and be like, you're dysfunctional. And it's another thing for them to be like, oh, maybe we're dysfunctional. So that's something else. I also was at a really cool former client and this was a cool way to do it. So the CEO was new. He'd been in there about six months, national search. He was brought in. He brought in a guest speaker at his board meeting of another board chair whose board was transformed. And this board chair was the Felix, but it was a peer, it was a a collaborative partner organization that does not conflict, but is in the same space as this client. And this guy sat down, it was like a fireside chat. So he sat down on a stool, like you were at a TED talk in front of this board meeting and said, let me tell you where I was three years ago with my board. I had just been come in. I was the new guy. Nobody was showing up to meetings. We went through three CEOs. He starts the story and you're like captivated the whole time. And he tells that same board that he really, he's not connected to them, except that they're in the same space and a board member knew him. That was powerful because it was a peer organization CEO talking about how they had transformed. And then they kind of want to be like that one. Like, oh, we want to be like them. That made a big impact on the board. All right. So I think we have time for a couple more questions here. Marin has a question. What are your favorite sources or methods for finding new board members? This one's going to sound funny, but the board members that are already there is one. (laughs) Sometimes we don't ask because I think of this a lot when I'm helping my friends and colleagues find jobs. So somebody who's unhappy in their job and they're like, I want a new job. And you're like, okay, what are you looking for? And then they don't actually tell you, or they'll be really specific like in this scenario of the criteria, like, oh, well, we need a lawyer who lives in this zip code that has been, works on intellectual property. Like they'll get so specific that it's like, oh, I don't know one of those. I would think about criteria like Rhea was saying, I'm looking for people that have experience in the space of healthcare or food banks or whatever. Somebody that maybe has done something like that before. Maybe someone who came from a community that we're serving. So maybe they're in this category or, or that. Someone who may probably is a mid-level manager. So they understand the issues we have. Maybe this is their first or second board they've been on. If you were to think about criteria that also reflect eventually what you're trying to fill, I think that your existing board members may know more people than they think. But if you ask for a very specific thing, they may be like, I don't know anyone in intellectual property, but it's really, you just need a a really good legal mind or maybe someone who's worked in patents. It could be a scientist, but you hadn't thought about that. So I think the initial board members I've also done from the, on the other complete end of the spectrum, I did some really cool LinkedIn searches on a former board member and his connections. So within LinkedIn, you can look at connections that are connections of someone else. So I grabbed this board member who's I'm connected to, and I'm like, I want to figure out connections to that person that are, and you can do this in LinkedIn. You can indicate whether or not you're looking for a board seat. So I chose interested in nonprofit boards connected to that board member. And then you have this list of maybe there were 20. And then we went through that list of people together 
And we actually pulled up, we've got two new board members just out of that, that he had forgotten he knew that were already in the area. This was a geographic thing too. So we wanted them to be in a specific city. So that's the opposite end of where you're almost like data prospecting their own LinkedIn network, but there's other fun ways to do that. And Rhea, you probably have a lot of great other new board member ideas too. Well, it's so funny you mentioned it because I have a video training about how to use LinkedIn to find new board members. So oh, there you go. Off. Did it say that? No, it totally did. I'm like, okay. be connected to all your board members and do a, yes. a second degree search plus click go. this thing. There you go. Yeah. I've also used uh, Headhunters, which mm-hmm. can be hit or miss, but there's one I really like here in New York. And then I also like to think about my major donors or my yeah. mid-level donors or people who are already connected with the organization in some way. The other thing is I think it's important to always have a list going, almost like yeah. being a AAA ball recruiter. Like you always have a warm bench going. That's right. All right. I'm going to jump to Jordan because Jordan, this is a hot topic and I'm really glad that you brought it up. You want to jump in here and ask? And I think that will bring us to our time. Hi, sure. Thanks for the opportunity. So I really think that the nonprofit industrial complex is broken. I've been in the space about 15 years and it really trickles on down to the way that individual nonprofits are organized. And really the heart of the problem is that boards are the boss. How do we stop that? How do we get boards to be less where the buck stops and more a conduit to the community, consistently connected as the voice and the heart of the community? Why do all the decisions have to be made by the board? Why can't they be more facilitators to the needs and wants and desires of the community we serve? Ooh, that's a great, and I think another piece of it that's also not a flaw, but also creates this monster is that they're unpaid. And that would probably like throw people's flags up all over the place if nonprofit board members were paid. But to be honest, I actually think that wouldn't be a bad idea. Not that they're paid a lot, but I mean, you've already got a lot of ingredients with a nonprofit that make it tough. I feel like there's a lot of legal answers to why a nonprofit is governed by many people. So I don't know that it could still be considered a nonprofit or if there's other options for organizations to exist that would not place this kind of body of people around it. But that's really provocative. And it makes me want to think about that because I hadn't really considered, is there a way to do it where it's not governed by a group or whatever. The mission vision and being able to fulfill your mission is really important. And I think if the board's not focused on the ultimate mission and ultimate clients of the nonprofit, that's where I think think go amiss. So I'm probably not answering Jordan's question as well as they would like me to answer it, but it's such a provocative question, actually. It makes me really start thinking. So I'm going to unpack your question a little bit, Jordan, and these are just coming to me. So they're not fully formed thoughts, but number one, it is that way because the IRS says it has to be that way. So like there are some legal underpinnings to that. The notion of power is interesting, but I do think we need to break that down because I think we come with the idea that the power rests with, you know, let's just say like wealthy white people who are on boards. And I think that we also have to think about being strategic and intentional about who we're bringing on the board. Cause it's like not every board member is going to be the board member that is raising a ton of money. There are board members who are connected to the community. There are board members that are subject matter experts, right? But it's the hope that the collection of experiences and diversity on the board will come to an answer that works. And then I also think the notion of power on a board is really interesting because here's the thing, at the end of the day, in there's sort of like in theory and in practice thing. Mm-hmm. In theory, yes, the board officially holds the governing power. In practice, I think the ED actually wields a lot of power. And the talented ED is able to direct the power of the board as necessary. And so I say this often, which is, Sure, the board is the head, 
but the ED is the neck and it can turn the head where it wants to see. So I think I'd probably want to unpack what you mean when you say power as well. That may be unsatisfactory, yeah. but. Yeah, and maybe it's also in this scenario, how can the ED or seniors team acknowledge and, and be empowered themselves? I think what you're implying, what Jordan's implying is the imbalance of perceived or actual power. And that isn't good no matter what. It's not good if it's only on the ED or CEO side at all. And it's not good if it's only perceived or actual on the board. So like, you know, there's that typical graph of managing versus governing and like the, you know, these things that only the board should be able to actually do or is responsible for. There's a big middle, which is shared. Things should be done together in concert. And then there's things that should never be touched by the board. For example, staffing, which is always makes me furious when they start to tell people who to hire. It is not cool. It is not their job. There's two sides of that. So it's probably Jordan, that balance of it and the combination that is the answer maybe in some way to make sure that it's not geared to one or the other, because either one of them is bad. Everything should be shared and it should always be focused on the mission. We've run through the hour, which I knew we would. This has been a ton of fun. Where can folks find you online if they want to know more about you or work with you or just get bask in your brilliance? <laughs> My firm is called the Olympia Collective. So it's the Olympiacollective.com. And I think I'm the only Olympia Collective if you Google it, even without my tons of SEO. I think you should be able to find me. <laughs> All right. The Olympia Collective. I will make sure that it's in the show notes for folks who want to get in touch. Only thank you so much. This is so fun. We should do this again. We should be like the car talk of the nonprofit I'm world. I'm Would in. Would be I fun? Think, yeah. I think we need to be the next The View. We're the next The Nonprofit View. That's yeah. us. <laughs> I have some problems with those ladies, but yes. Okay, fine. I, I know. Me too. <laughs> All right, y'all. Have a great one.